We're going to start off today in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. And uh, I don't have that on the screen for you today. I'd like you just to follow along. You can listen along. I'm going to read it for you. Uh, But if you want, you can follow along in your Bible. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Paul says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body uh, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to those Uh, who were far off, and and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I'd like to pray one more time. Heavenly Father, God, I just want to thank you for your word. God, I pray that you would open your word up to us as we look at this passage of Scripture. Lord, as Paul penned this so long ago, Lord, we just pray that you would help us to understand what it means for us today. God, I pray that you'd fill this room with your spirit and fill me with your spirit as I preach, God. And each person in this room, God, I pray that your spirit would be a part of them and and opening up their minds and helping them to understand. Lord, we know that if it's not for you and for your power, Lord, we would not understand this. Lord, we would read it through eyes that are selfish and self-motivated, Lord, but we know that your spirit can break that power. And so, God, we pray for that this morning. In your name, amen. All right, I'm going to start with verse 11. I'm going to read it again. It says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. And then he goes on. But now let's think about this for a second. I'm going to assume for a minute everybody in the room knows what it means to be circumcised. Okay? But this was a term that the Jews would talk about, and they would refer to that as themselves. We are the, of the circumcision. Right? Now, what's he mean? What Paul's talking about is that Jews would look at themselves, and they did, rightly so, they looked at themselves as God's people, God's chosen people. We're the Jews. For a Jew, everybody that is not a Jew is called a Gentile. As far as I know, that's everybody in the room today. I don't know, I don't think anybody is of Jewish descent in here. And so that means all of us. So this is important for us because we're all Gentiles, right? Okay? Now, the circumcision, the uncircumcision, circumcision was given through Abraham as a sign to say we're God's people. And notice Paul makes a point of saying uh, something that's done in the flesh by hands. Now, in the Old Testament law, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, uh, God goes the, uh, the next step and says, this is really, right, through Moses he's saying this, it's really meant to represent something deeper. So Deuteronomy 10, 16 says, he says, circumcise your hearts. Right, And so there's, there's a lot of things there that we could talk about. But what we need to get from this today is this. We are not, by our descent, God's chosen people. Right? We're not. The Jews were God's chosen people. Okay? And Paul tells the Ephesians the same thing. They were not Jews, and so he tells the Ephesians the same things. He says, you, you're, you, according to the circumcision, right, the Jews, were the Gentiles. You're the uncircumcision. Okay? And so he's kind of, and he tells them to remember this. Remember this. Don't forget this. Okay? Then he moves on to verse 12. Verse 12 kind of plays out what does that actually mean? Okay? What does this actually mean? This is for us because we are of the uncircumcision, right? We are 
not Jews. We are Gentiles. And so this is for us. This also applies to anybody that's born, really. Okay? And there's five things that Paul says. He lists off these five things. And he says, so verse 12, he says, remember, again, he says, remember. Remember, number one, he says that you were at that time separated from Christ. And so the number one thing he says is, number one, you were separated from Christ. Now, the word separated means literally, it means without any. It doesn't mean that you were, you did have Christ and then you were cut off from Christ. It actually means you were without any Christ. And notice it doesn't say you were without Jesus Christ, right? It just says Christ. Christ is a word that is talking about the Messiah or the anointed one. What's this mean? This means that you did not have a Messiah. Right? That's all it says. You, you did not have a Messiah. You didn't have the hope of someone coming one day for you. Job, way back in the Old Testament, Job, who probably lived about the same time Abraham did, voiced his concern. He said, he said if there was only someone to be a go-between between God and man. Right? We need a Messiah. We need someone to be a go-between. And Paul says, see, because, because you were of the uncircumcision, at one time, and so let me just put it this way, at one time, all of you were apart from or separate from having a Messiah, someone that was for you to come and intercede for you. Okay? So that's number one, he says. Number two. Number two, he says, after that, he says, you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Okay? Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Uh, this is talking about citizenship. Basically, he's saying you're alienated, which means excluded. You were excluded and the, the word commonwealth is a word that looks like the word politics, right? It's politia. And basically it's talking about, and Paul's saying, you were excluded from being citizens of God's chosen people. You weren't part of the citizenship. Now this is important. Racially speaking, none of you in this room were born into a position of citizenship with God's people, right? None of you were born into a point of citizenship. So this is important. As Americans, we, we tend to have kind of a manifest destiny. Anybody remember that from history? Manifest destiny. That's the, that's the we felt like God had given us the whole continent and we pushed west because we felt like God had called us to do this. But that's nothing compared to what the Jews had. The Jews had this wealth of things from Abraham and Isaac. And, and it says, you know, they were, they were God's chosen people. But you have to understand, we didn't have that. In reality, none of us had that when we were born. We weren't part of God's people. In fact, it says we're excluded. Number three, he goes on. He says, you're alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. And, he says, strangers to the covenants of promise. Strangers means foreigners. It's a word that means foreigners. You were a foreigner to these covenants. Now, what's he talking about the covenants of promise? This is a nice way of Paul kind of packaging in the covenants that were made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, God made certain promises to them. God made promises to Moses. God made some promises even to David. But you were born in a state where you didn't have that. You were, you were a foreigner to all those covenants. All those promises that God had, they didn't apply to you. Right? When you were born. And this is getting to be a serious condition. But he goes on. Not only were we strangers to the covenants of promise, next phrase he says, oh, I forgot to pop that one up there, I'm sorry. Next one he says is this, that you had no hope. Now, I want to explain what the word hope means. Uh, I, I, I bring this one up every once in a while. The word hope in the Bible is not talking about, man, I hope so. A lot of people can have that, right? A lot of people can have like a, a, a positive thought, like I'm hoping for a better tomorrow kind of thing, right? I'm hoping for this. A lot of people are going to have hope in that sense. But when the Bible talks about hope, they're saying there's an assurance of something better to come. Right? And so Paul says, you were without hope. You didn't have hope. I mean, you didn't have any assurance of a better future and a better tomorrow, especially when we get to dealing with things in eternity. Right? None of us were born automatically having that hope. Which means we get to the final thing. Because we didn't have the Messiah, because we're strangers, because we're aliens to the, the, the commonwealth of Israel, we get to the final thing here. He says, you were without God in the world. Now, it's interesting because this word in the Greek, 
it's to say without God, it, it's literally a means no or not a theist. So actually, what it says is you were a theist, right? Like an atheist. I mean, that's exactly what the Greek word is here. Now, the Ephesians, the Ephesians weren't atheists. The Ephesians worshipped idols, right? Yes, you can nod. They did. Artemis, greatest Artemis of the Ephesians, right? They worshipped different idols, and one of the main idols they worshipped was Artemis. Yet Paul here calls them atheists. Why? Because ultimately, those idols are no God, right? They're not really God. And so Paul paints this five-point picture of the reality of where we're at, right? This is where you are. You're without hope. You have no God in the world. Every single one of you was born into this dreadful state, right? Now, remember he said, you were in this state. In verse 13 he says, but now something is different, right? This kind of goes back to what happened in the first part of chapter 2 where it says, you were dead in your sin, but now you're alive in Christ, right? And so he's kind of doing the same thing again here. He says, oh, you were these things, but now there's something different. You see, you were without hope. You were without a Christ, without a Messiah. You were in this state. But now Ephesians, he's talking to these Ephesians who have converted to Christianity. He says, now something is different. But before we go on, there's something very important in these first few things that we absolutely cannot miss. I'm going to tell you right now, I almost missed it when I studied it. I was digging in because there is so much in this passage, so many, so many different thoughts and things you could go through in here. But I almost missed this key component to this passage. In fact, it wasn't until this morning that I recognized this. We have in this verse, in fact, verse 11, we have the very first command in the book of Ephesians. Uh, and I, I double-checked it again to say, I was like, man, is this really the case? Because I, I, I thought it was, and I went back through and I read, yep, sure enough, but in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, Paul gets to the first thing that he actually tells them to do something that's written as a command. Unless I missed one somewhere, that, somewhere in there in the first uh, you know, chapter and a half, this is the first command that Paul has for the Ephesian church. Does anybody see what it is? Remember. Let's put that up there. Remember. Paul says the first thing he tells them to do so far, he hasn't told them to do anything. He's talked about what God has done. But the first time he gives a command, it's the command, remember. And notice at the very beginning of verse 12, doesn't it say it again? Remember. Twice. Notice it's not a suggestion. It's a command. So now my first thought is, okay, here's something we can take with us today easily. Here's our application already. We have it, don't we? We need to remember. Now, before I look at why Paul may have said this, because my next thought was, why did Paul say, why is this the first thing that he tells us to do, is to remember? Before I get into some reasons that maybe why Paul said remember, I, I want to kind of look back at where we've been and where we're going in the book of Ephesians. One of the most important things when you study the Bible and you seek to understand the Bible is to look at what we call the context, right? We've got to look at where we've been, where we're going, what's going on in this passage. So let's think back as we think about this word remember. First of all, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, it was all about what God did and how God had blessed us. And it, it focused on in eternity past, right? I mean, Ephesians starts off, in, I mean, I can't think of any other way of describing the beginning of Ephesians other than thinking, uh, the, here's the words that come to my mind. When I think of Ephesians chapter 1, the first 10 verses, first 14 verses, I think mind-boggling. I mean, that's what I think about. I mean, you can't read Ephesians chapter 1 without... I mean, if you really read it... I mean, some people can read it and it's like, whoop, right? I mean, that happens all the time. A lot of people can sit down and read the Bible and nothing... But if you stop and you start thinking, what is he talking about here? Your, your brain has a hard time to, to, to com comprehend because it's talking about some eternal God kind of things. And so that's one of the reasons why I, I, I use the, the title slide for the first part of Ephesians, How Big Is Your View of God? Because Ephesians starts off, I mean, in fact, of all the books of the New Testament, I think Ephesians, this is just my opinion, but I think Ephesians digs into some of the deepest theological things you could ever imagine. I mean, it just jumps right in head first, right? 
And then it gets into the church and it starts talking about, really, what is the church about? I mean, what's going on with the church? And so I kind of adjusted to how big is your view of God's church? And, and then it gets into salvation, really digging into the inner recesses of the human heart. What's going on when someone gets saved? I and mean, what's really happening here? Right? But you know, the thing about Ephesians that's, that's amazing, and we haven't gotten to it yet, is that if you go to the end of Ephesians, a lot of people almost think about it like it's a totally separate book of the Bible. But if you go to the end of the book of Ephesians, the end of Ephesians is one of the most practical books of the whole New Testament. Do this and don't do this and don't lie and don't steal. And, you know, I mean, it's just so practical. And, and it talks about marriage and raising your children and I mean, all these really practical things. <clears throat> right? And the transition between deep theological heavy thinking and then over here to the practical stuff it's something that we just can't forget. We can't skip over this. I mean, I, I, I'm going to tell you right now that in my heart, this is one of the most important things that I could tell you from this pulpit ever. Is that your theology, what you think about God, has everything to do with how you live for God. And there are too many Christians that want to know how to live for God. But when you start talking about theology, you say, I don't even want to think about it. That's just too much for me. I just And we'll get into that in just a minute. But Paul paints a very clear connection between the beginning and the end. And that he slowly transitions out of deep theological thoughts into real Christian living. What it's really about. And we're getting the first glimpses of it right now. Right? The first command, remember. Right? Remember. And there's going to be some more. He's going to do some more thinking and some, some more of this. And then and we get into chapter 4, all of a sudden he's, really, he's going to say, therefore walk. Right? Chapter 4 says walk. In other words, live this way in chapter 4. But see, we're already getting the glimpses of this right now. And so let's hit four purposes that I believe that Paul throws in this first command right in the middle of this deep theological way of looking at things, really digging into the reality of salvation, Paul says to remember. So the first reason I believe that this is the case is this. Okay, let me skip ahead here. Right walking starts with right thinking. Okay? Right walking, where Paul's going to go, right walking, doing the right things, living the right way, doing the right things, starts with right thinking. Now, if I may be so bold as for just a minute, this is one thing that in America, this is just a reality, the, the, the generation ahead of me and maybe even the generation ahead of that has totally flopped on. I'm not saying that to be mean, but I'm saying this is a reality. If you dig back into Christian living back in the 1800s and the 1700s and the 1600s, I mean, the average typical Joe Christian was a deeply theological individual, right? But something happened, and there's actually a name for it. That's uh, this. This was not deemed a Christians didn't come up with the name. This is in a study history class. There was a, an intellectual movement in a lot of liberal colleges, and the Christians to fight against the the wrong thinking instead of promoting right thinking. You know what they did? They promoted no thinking. And it's actually called it's actually called the anti-intellectualism, right? And some pastors that you've heard and loved from the day gone by really promoted this way of looking at things. Okay, but thinking in the Bible is very important, and in Paul's case, this is played out very clearly. Let me just give you a few passages of Scripture to to kind of bring these things back. And I'm not going to put them up here because I because I want you to think. I'm going to flip to some of these. And turn to them, and, and you can turn to them as well. You may want to write these down and chew on them a little bit later. In fact, the word remember that Paul uses right here, the Greek word for remember, if you, if you like dig down and see what's the root of this word, it comes from one of two words. It either comes from a word that means to abide or to live in this spot, or the, the, more, the, 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 the one that I think it comes from that is also very possible. This is where the word remember comes from. It comes from a Greek word that means to chew on. I like that, don't you? So when Paul says remember, it, it comes from a word that means to chew on this. Right? It's not remember in the sense of 
think back to something that happened to you. Paul's saying, remember this the way I tell my kids, like if I leave the house, sometimes I'll say, now remember, don't forget this or don't forget to do this. What am I saying? I'm saying keep this at the forefront of your mind, right? So if this happens, you're thinking about it, okay? Now, let me just hit a few passages of Scripture. And I'm not going to rush through these because I do have to turn to them. Uh, the first one is Romans 121. Romans 121, and I'll turn over there real quick, Romans 121. Actually, I think I've got some slides for this so you can get those scriptures up there. I'm not going to put the whole scripture up there, but I am going to put the references so you can see it. Romans 121 uh, paints a very interesting picture, that's, and, and I want you to listen for the connection to, to thinking. Uh, I'm going to go back to verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, okay? who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Okay? For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they're without excuse. Verse 21, For all they, they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Futile means empty, Right? And their hearts were darkened. Notice that what happened. These things are being made plain to them. But instead of deep thinking, here's the reality. They, be, they, they chose the route of empty thinking. This is the equivalent of saying, I don't like to get into all that. Right? Somebody wants to talk about something in the Bible. Well, you know, the Bible says this or it says this. And I, I know a lot, of, a lot of people that go, you know, I, I don't really get into all that. I leave that for the pastor. I leave that for the... right. I don't want to get into all that. That is futile thinking. It's empty thinking. I'd, if it's deep and heavy, it's not for me. Right? I'm not going to get into it. Or how about this one? 1 Corinthians 14.20. And I'm, I'm not going to turn to this one, but let me put the reference up there. I'm just going to read one part of this one. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14.20 says, Brothers, don't be children in your thinking. Don't be children in your thinking. He goes on to say, instead, be mature thinkers, is basically what he says. This is to all Christians. This isn't just to a certain select few. Christians are supposed to be thinkers. 1 Peter 4.1 Now, Peter, Peter's interesting because Peter, the first time Peter preached, it says that the crowd perceived that he was uneducated. Have you ever thought about that? He wasn't. He wasn't an educated person. He was a fisherman. But it actually says the crowd perceived that he was uneducated. I think that's funny. They must, maybe, it was his, maybe it was the way he talked. I can just imagine. Because they, they talked about that part of the country of Israel up north. They had a certain, uh, you, know, you know, what's a, an accent to the way they spoke. Because there's that other place in the Bible that talks about that. But P Peter was not an educated guy. But listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 4.1. He says, Arm yourself with that way of thinking. And what he's talking about, he was talking about the way Christ thinks and lives. Right? And so he's talking about what Christ was doing and sacrificing. And then he says, Peter says, arm yourself with that way of thinking. And so Peter, here this uneducated guy, but he understood thinking was important. It was important for how you live. And so Peter says, arm yourself with right thinking. Right? Or how about Philippians 4.8? If you, if you have no, no other place to turn to, you could easily turn to this one. Philippians 4.8 is a command that lists out all these things. True and honest and just and good report, the virtue and praise. And uh, Paul says, think on these things. The command is to think. We have a whole generation now that's coming up. And I'm, I'm speaking to you right now from personal experience as a teacher. We have a generation that's coming up right now that does not like to think. I mean, there is no kid that's ever enjoyed story problems in math. Okay? There's nobody. If you do, you're weird if you like story problems. Okay? But there's no kid that loves story problems. Nobody ever goes, story problems, yay! Right? But what I've got, what's going on now, and this is not just in my classroom. I get together with other math teachers sometimes from all of the district, and we have conversations. But what is going on? And, there, and this isn't just in Christian circles of people thinking about this. I mean, you can read about this. 
we live in a society that almost refuses to think. Don't make me think. I want to be entertained. I don't want to think. And, and I get kids that just get, they, they just get down. If they got to think about, if I give them a question that's more than one sentence, they're mad. Oh, you know, I mean, you got to think about this. And they've even said that before. I said, what don't you like about this problem? They go, because I have to think. I see your poor child. <laughs> but it's a reality. And if we set aside the humor of it, which is funny. It is funny because you look at it and you're like, this is ridiculous. But if you set aside the humor of it for a minute, there, this is a reality. But what I want to notice is this. As a Christian, we can't be like the world, especially right now how the world is. We live in a world that does not like to think. Especially about anything that's deep or heavy. Uh... A theologian that I really love is D.A. Carson. And D.A. Carson talks about how he, he goes to college campuses all over the world and speaks in these public college campuses. He says, at no time, no time has he noticed such a degree of don't talk about anything deep or heavy. We'll talk about this, we'll talk about this, but if you want to talk about something heavy, like death. That's like taboo, don't bring it up. Everybody dies. It's important to talk about these kinds of things. But we live in a generation that does not like to think. And you know what? Uh, the older generation, the generation that's over me, you can look at the kids today and go, oh, those kids. But I'm going to be honest with you. If you study history, that way of thinking, this like, I want to be entertained. I don't want to think about deep things, did not come from outside. It's come from inside. From families. And we have not promoted hard thinking with our kids. And they've grown up to be people who don't like to think. And in fact, what's scary is that we've grown up to such a point now where you have people who are the adults in church now that, that actually have, have fallen back to such a degree that they look at thinking, the hard thinking of studying the Word of God and studying Scripture and all that. We, we leave that to certain select people. That's not for everybody. And you just can't read the Bible and believe that at all. It is very important to think rightly and to think clearly and to think hard thoughts right I don't think it's any coincidence that the first command that Paul gives in Ephesians is remember chew on this for a little while he says chew on it think about it remember it don't don't let it escape your mind when you walk out of here today don't let this like go away you hold on to this thought remember it and Paul's saying all these things and he says he's talking about who God is and all the things he's done and then he says Remember this. Don't let it go. Chew on it. And it's important to understand these things. <clears throat> now I'm going to dig in a little bit deeper now though. Asking the question, what, what are some benefits of remembering? And so the first one was clear. Right thinking promotes right walking. Right walking comes from right thinking. But now specifically the thing that Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 2 is... Thinking about yourself. Thinking correctly about yourself. I'd like to look to Galatians uh, 6.3. I'll put a slide up there for you in just a second on this. But I don't want to give away the point yet. Galatians 6.3 says, If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. If anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing... He's deceived himself. Well, Paul, that doesn't do much for my self-esteem. You just said I was nothing. I should think of myself as nothing. You know, the thing about right thinking, right thinking about yourself destroys pride. Correct thinking about yourself destroys pride. I like to look at a passage in Ezekiel, Old Testament here. Ezekiel chapter 20. I'm not going to put this up on the screen again. I'm not going to put the reference up there. We're just going to turn to it. If you want, you can just listen to this. Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 42 through 44. I want you to listen for the ideas of remembering and thinking and see what Ezekiel says about this. Ezekiel 20, verses 42 through 44 says this. 
And you shall know that I am the Lord when I bring you into the land of Israel, the country that I swore to give to your fathers. So here God is speaking, right? And He says, you'll, you'll know I'm the Lord when I bring you into the land. And He says, and there you shall remember your ways. Do you hear the remember there already? There you shall remember your ways and all your deeds with which you have defiled yourselves. And you ready for this? And you shall loathe yourselves for all the evils that you have committed. And you shall know that I am the Lord. Now listen to this. When I deal with you for my name's sake, not according to your evil ways, nor according to your corrupt deeds, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. He says, remember... Your evil ways and your evil deeds. Right? Remember your evil ways and your evil deeds and know that God, I, the Lord your God, am not going to deal with you according to how you are, what you deserve, but instead I'm going to deal with you according to who I am. I'm going to pop a phrase up there. See what you think about this. The fact that Christ died for you doesn't make you special. It makes Him special. Now, the reason why I mention this is because I've heard people say this before, and I'm, I'm, the reason why I'm addressing it right now is because I believe this is so important. I've heard people say, you are so special. Do you know how special you are? And they be, how special? You know that you're so special that Christ died for you? That's how special you are. You know, here's the thing. Christ did not die for you because you were special. He died because He is God. and he, it, it was all because of Him. There's not one person on this planet that God said, that person is so special, I want to make sure they're part of my kingdom. I need that person. That is not what happened. I mean, we went through Ephesians. The first part of Ephesians clearly plays out. All of us were dead in sin. Even your most righteous deed. Think, think about this. Mo- the best thing that you have ever done in your life to God is like a filthy rag, it says. There's not one thing you've ever done that God goes, now I'm pleased. Because 99.999%, everything we do, in fact, I would say because the Bible tells us that 100% of all we do is done, right, for the wrong reasons. But... And so, see, we, we've, we've, we've kind of gotten confused on some things because we say, well, I haven't murdered and killed and I haven't done these things, so I'm pretty good, right? But we just read in uh, Romans chapter 1 that uh, where they messed up in their empty thinking was they did not honor God and recognize God in all that they did. And so let's say you work really hard and you do a good job on something. If you didn't do that simply to glorify Christ, you missed the point. You were created for His glory. Right? You were created. God formed you and created you. He knitted you together in your mother's womb simply for the glory of God. And everything that we've done in our lives that is not for God's glory is sin to God because that's what sin means, to miss the mark, to miss the point. Right? And we've gotten confused on these things. But you have to understand that Christ, the fact that Christ died on the cross for you doesn't make you special. It makes Him special. It makes Him special. And according to Ezekiel, right? God says, and I say it's not even according to Ezekiel, it's according to what God says, there should be a certain understanding of who you are. And a recognition that uh, <clears throat> the only thing that I've got going for me is that God is for me. I don't look at anything within myself as being something good or great that I go, yes, this is the thing. I and mean, this shoots a hole in this idea of self-esteem. Right? I mean, some of us jokingly address that, but let's address it biblically for a moment. We are not to esteem ourselves. In fact, the Bible says to esteem everybody else is better than yourself, first of all. Right? But we're not to esteem ourselves. In fact, we're not to think highly of ourselves. And definitely not to think that we're something when reality was we're nothing, according to Galatians 6. There should be a certain amount of as God said in Ezekiel, a certain amount of loathing for my deeds, what I do. And understanding that I look to God alone. He is my righteousness. He is my peace. All that's in Him. 
Now I'm going to look at another passage in Ezekiel. And I'm going to tell you in advance. I have toyed around with whether or not I should read this or not. Because I'm going to be honest with you, it's a little bit graphic. Okay? Ezekiel chapter 16. But this, this passage kind of ties in the fact that a right thinking about yourself destroys pride. Remembering how it can destroy pride. But then it's going to lead into my next point. So I'm going to turn to Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel chapter 16. If we start at verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, and so he's telling him what to say. This is what you're going to say to, to my people in Jerusalem and all the things that they've done. Right? And so he, he, he really addresses them in some really hard ways at the beginning. And, and, and he says, Your origin, in verse 3, he says, Your origin and your birth are in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother was a Hittite. Right? As for your birth, he says in verse 4, he says, On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you. But you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. Listen to this. This is such a picture of God's grace. Ready for it? And it says, And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing, like I said, I... This is, this is a little bit graphic, okay? Uh, Ezekiel 16, 6. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you, in your blood, live. And I said to you, in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field. Right? And yet he says, you were naked and bare. Verse 8, he comes by again. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were of the age for love. And, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I, I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God. And you became mine, and I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you with, also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you, I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrist and chain on your neck. And I put a ring in your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. And listen to this. You, you grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord. So think about this picture. The Lord comes by and he... It's a picture of a man coming by and seeing a woman that is destitute. Been left in a field as a child. and He grew her up and, and then even has grown still destitute and, and, and abhorred by everybody else. And this brings her in and cleans her up. This is like, you know, my fair lady, right? You know, brings her up and... and, and Basically, the end product is this beautiful woman. Everything about her, though, was a gift from God. Blessed her with beauty and all these things. But listen to the response. But you trusted in your beauty. And it says, And played the whore, the prostitute, because of your renown. And lavished your whorings on, on any passerby. And your beauty became his. See, the Lord your God is a jealous God. He desires the place of prominence in your heart. The only place where God should be. The place of worship and adoration. And He does this because He is the greatest thing in the universe. He is more glorious than anything else. But we set up in our hearts the things that we long for. What do you long for the most? What is the thing that you set up in your heart? What... what what occupies your mind? See, because sometimes you say, no, I really want God the most, but we're not talking, we, we, we can't beat around the bush here. I mean, let's get right to the point. There are things that you long for more than anything else. Some of you, more than anything else, you just want to be healthy. Some of you, more than anything else, you desire a good life. And things to fall into place. I just wish all my ducks in a row would they all get lined up and everything would start to work the way I want it to work. Some of you long for wealth, not because you just want to be rich, but man, there's a lot of things that you'd love to have. Oh, I'd love to have that. Oh, I'd love to have that. Some of you long for peace. 
And the family is bickering. Just, I just want everybody to get along. I want it so much. This is what the Bible talks about when it talks about spiritual adultery. Because anything, you, anytime you raise up something as important to you, more than God, that's spiritual adultery. It's, it's the same thing in God's eyes as, as, a, as a wife going after another man. In God's eyes, that's how he sees it. Notice as he goes on, he talks about all these things that she's done and, and all the good things that he'd blessed her with, he gave to everybody else. This is, this is the same thing as how God blesses each one of us and he blesses us with talents and abilities and we don't use them for his glory on this earth. You have one time on this planet and you're to live your life for the glory of God and for the greatness of Christ. And so many of us, we live for ourselves instead. We want this and I want that and I want this. And we don't live for the glory of Christ. We live for our retirement. We live for our vacations. We live for our nicer car. And we set up all these things as higher. And what God says, I want that central spot of your heart. And we give these things out to everything else to try to obtain them. Notice verse 22. Of Ezekiel 16, it says, And in all your abominations and your whorings, you did not remember the day of your youth when you were naked and bare, wallowing in your blood. In other words, what is, what, did you hear the remember in there? You didn't remember who you were. In other words, if you would have remembered who you were, you would have remained faithful. This brings me to my next point. Right thinking about yourself Right thinking about yourself fuels a passion for God. It fuels a passion for God. Romans chapter 12. I'm going to read this one real quick. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, says this. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In other words, your spiritual act of worship to God is to take you, yourself, and give your whole self over to be a living sacrifice for God. In other words, I sacrifice any good thing I could ever get in this life. I, I give it up for the sake of God and for the sake of Christ. I, I, I give it all up. I, I, would, I would sacrifice anything for the sake of Christ. Lord, you, take my life... Do with it whatever you want so that by the time I get to the end of my life, there will be people that say that Christ is glorious and they'll say it because of how I lived. Do you understand that? That The the most important thing about you and your life is that when you get to the end of your life, you will have glorified Christ. That when people look at you and your life, they'll say, Jesus must be amazing. Jesus must be the most amazing thing ever. Because this person loved Jesus more than anything else. All they cared about was Jesus. They, they lost everything and they cared about Jesus. They said, as long as I've got Jesus, I've got everything. Right? But notice, to present yourself as a living sacrifice, right? He goes on, he says, Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your Mind, there's the idea of thinking again. See, this doesn't, you can't just have this happen. You can't just hear, you can't just come to church and hear somebody say, give yourself as a loving sacrifice to God and go, oh yeah, that's what I need to do, and then go out and do it. It doesn't happen that way. It happens on the inside first. You, the, the changing has to happen on how you think. No longer does catching the, the next movie that comes out, you know, oh man, I've got to see the Avengers, right? It's coming out, it's going to be awesome. Instead of thinking that way, you've got to be thinking, I just, I just want to see Christ today and how I live my life. Who cares about the Avengers? How does that happen? How does that kind of transformation happen? It says right there, by the renewing of your mind. And listen, it keeps going. He says, by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. But listen to verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Now stop right there. To think with sober judgment. Don't think of yourself more highly than you are. Don't, don't lift yourself up as being something that's important, that must get this and I must get this. Instead, you're to think of yourself, I'm simply a, a vessel in God's hands. I, I just want to be a, a, 
a doorkeeper in the house of God, if I could just be something small just for you, God, that's all I want. Just to serve you with my life. I don't want to get to the end of my life and not have done this. The final point that I have for you today is this. And this one just kind of stems from everything else that we've talked about. But if I go back to Ephesians chapter 2, Christ eventually turns to preaching. He says, I preach peace to those who are far off and peace to those who are near. Ephesians chapter 3, Paul starts talking about the, the preaching this gospel, sharing this gospel, this reality with everybody else. The truth is, right thinking, right thinking about yourself strengthens your evangelism to tell others. See, when you begin to think rightly about yourself and who you are, right? Number one, those people that seem like so hard to the gospel, you go, God can save anybody because He saved me. And I was hard to the gospel. I was opposed to the gospel. So if God can save me, He can save anybody. He can save anyone. And it promotes and strengthens that concept of evangelism, telling other people about the gospel because you recognize what a sinner you are. And it promotes that outward look. But it also, when you begin to understand who Christ is and how great He is and how glorious He is, and you begin to understand and you let yourself remember, chew on all the good things that Christ has done, you start thinking things like this. I want everybody to know about this. I don't want anybody I know to miss this. Now, we're going to shift gears a little bit into communion. But as we do this, I think it's important to understand a certain word that shows up in this communion process. When Jesus said, right, he instituted this, what's he say? This do in remembrance. See, even in this... There's the idea that you have to think rightly about what Christ did. See, we take communion not because it's a, just a tradition that, oh, we have to do this. This is the certain way it's done. Uh, you know, this, that's not what communion is about. Communion is about reminding yourself that Jesus Christ came to this earth, right? Lived an absolutely perfect life. He freely offers his righteousness to you. Right? The things that Jesus asks for in return is you. Your whole life. See, if you think, right? If you think in your mind that believing in Jesus, like it says in John 3.16, is about acknowledging it, I'm going to tell you today, that is such an abomination to what Christ has done for you. I want you to imagine for just a moment before we do this, because we're going to try to remember what Christ did on the cross. I want you to try to, try to imagine for a moment, right, that level of sacrifice done for you. Now imagine Christ was here and present in this room and he says, I did this for you. And you got a real good picture of it. Maybe you were there at the cross and you saw it. That level of sacrifice. That level of dedication. And Christ says, I want you to believe in me. Now, so he tells you this. Now you go to somebody else and say, Hey man, Christ did this for you. He sacrificed his life for you. And I want you to imagine the response being this. Yeah, I believe he did that. You go back to whatever you're doing. I mean, if, if, you, if you really let yourself chew on that level of belief, you recognize how much of an insult it is to Christ. To think that simply, to think that you've done what, what, what God wants you to do by, by popping into church and by, by you know, giving a little head nod, yes, I believe He did that. I believe that's real. So I'm going to heaven now because I believe it. It is, is such an insult to the degree of what Christ did for you and how glorious of an act that He did for you. And he asks in return, he says, I want you to believe in me. Not speaking about acknowledging with your mind, but about a complete self-sacrifice yourself to him. You can have my life, Jesus. Now that I understand what you did for me and who I was, 
you can have all of me. Everything. I, I will hold nothing back from you, Jesus. And I want to encourage you. We're getting ready. I'm going to get past these things. I'm going to pray for these things. And my prayer is going to be this. That as you, because the way we do this here, I, I pass out the bread, and we pass out the cup. I have you hold on to it, and you're going to sit there for a minute. And what I, w- I want you to do, and I'm going to be praying that you'll be able to do this, because this isn't meant to be something, just a religious act, right? We're to remember what Christ did. My prayer for you is going to be this today, and I hope that your prayer for yourself and for me and for everybody else in the room, that we'll be praying the same thing. Lord, help us to really chew on this, if maybe for the first time. Part of that's going to be you saying, God, you can have, there's, there's not one little bit of me that I'm going to hold back from you from this point forward. You want it, it's yours. Because I remember what you did. Anything, God. You want to give, sell everything, go. Or do you want to take everybody, and you want to take my health, you can have it. If, if taking my health, God, would make make you more glorified, you can have it. If taking my, all of my possessions will, will glorify you, it's yours. I, I just simply, Lord, want you to take me. If I get to a point in my, in my life where everybody hates me, some people strive for that, don't they? I want to be liked. If I get to a point in my life where everybody hates me, but it's for you, I'll do it. Anything, God, it's yours. I'm going to pray for these things. And then I'm going to have you come up and hand them out. So hold on just a second. And while we're handing these out, I'm going to have... You're going to play the piano? And I want you to start thinking through those things. Right before you take it, I'm going to read a passage out of Isaiah um, about thinking about who God is and what He's done. And then I'm going to lead you in taking the cup and the bread. Okay? Let's pray for the blessing here first. Our Heavenly Father, God, I just want to praise You for how glorious You are. Lord, I know that I find within myself, I forget. And I, there's so many other things that rise up in my own heart that, that I want and I love and I cherish those things. Lord, I pray that you'd help me today to remember who you are and who I am. Help me to have a right perspective. Lord, I pray, Lord, for this cup and this bread. Lord, we don't want this to fall into the, a, a simple pattern of a, re, a religious tradition, Lord. We want it to be meaningful. Lord, so we want this to be done in remembrance of You. We want to remember what You did on the cross. So, Lord, I pray that You would bless these two things. And Lord, bless everyone in the room as they hold these in their hands, Lord, that they will remember what You've done. And, Lord, all those little areas of our life that we hold back and keep you from having, Lord, you can have everything but not this. I don't even want to think about it, Lord, because if I think about it, then you're going to know I'm holding it back and I'm going to think about something else. Lord, I pray that all those little things that we will give those over to you, Lord, and give you our lives, our heart, our soul, everything. In Jesus' name I pray this.